Psalm 115, on page 510. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Well, if you're a Bob Dylan fan, then you probably have heard a quote by him where once he said that if you want to know what it means to be mortal, then you need look no further than the man in black. And of course, he was talking about Johnny Cash. Now, Johnny Cash was a famed country singer in his own right, sold something like 90 million records, which if you're not familiar with music, that's a big deal. Uh, He was a man with a a storied past, an interesting past. Uh, You could often hear it in his music, Uh, but he was a man who we think later became a Christian, but on the road to coming to Christ and even after Christ, struggled with sin. Uh, He struggled with being enslaved to all kinds of things. So uh, if you look at his history, you'll find that he was enslaved to addictions to drugs and to alcohol. He was enslaved to being a celebrity. He was enslaved to power, and he was enslaved to having a number of uh, adulterous relationships on his wife. Uh, This was a man who knew his sin and a man who felt the guilt and the weight of that. Uh, and so what's really fascinating is he actually, later in life, uh, I think it was like the last year of his life, uh, sang a by Nine Inch Nails. And this song is interesting because it really does sound like one of the saddest songs ever In it, he has this line that describes his life. And, and here's what he says. He says, what have I become my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you could have it all, my empire of dirt, I will let you down, I will make you hurt. See, Cash here is lamenting this empire of dirt that he built, becoming like what he worshipped. 
In other words, in this song, he says, I have become something. I have been shaped by all of those things that I loved and I worshiped and I lived for. And in the end, it is not what I desired to be. Well, I believe that this fits in perfect this morning with our Songs from the Shadow series. We're in Psalm 115, a psalm that is in the fifth book of the Psalms. Uh, I told you that this book is a book that actually is looking forward. Uh, We've looked back to King David and his historical reign in the first two books. We've looked at the exilic period in book three where God's people were away from God's land and God's presence. And here we are in book five, which is looking forward to a coming day when God promises that he is going to send a new and better king. A king who would come and give them the land that they had been promised and all of those promises that came along with it, the promises that God had made to Abraham and to David. Those promises were going to come to fulfillment, and this book looks towards that. Uh, This book also, it's interesting, Psalm 115 uh, falls into a section called the Great Halal. Uh, These are uh, some, some Psalms, 113 to 118, that would have been read during Passover. See, they called them this because that last phrase, look in, in 118, I mean in 115, uh, that very last phrase, do you see it, praise the Lord, how it ends with that? In, in Hebrew, that's literally hallelujah, or praise be to Yahweh, to God. And so these are psalms that, that give praise to God, and we don't know exactly the context for this psalm. Don't know exactly what was going on, it's hard to rip that from what we read here, but it, it does feel like we can draw some conclusions about what was going on. See, it seems like this psalmist writes from the perspective of a time when perhaps they had returned from exile, but when God's people actually feel like they are far from realizing the great promises that God had made to their fathers, Abraham and David, in the past. And they don't feel in that moment like the blessed, great nation that God said that they would be. Now, the surrounding nations in this moment, we are told, have forgotten God's mighty deeds as well. The deeds of saving Israel out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And they are now, these nations, looking upon Israel and they are taunting them with the question, where is your God now? Where is he? So in Psalm 115, God's people are asking God to vindicate his glorious name by demonstrating his power on their behalf once again, that's what they're asking for. So our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, this is where you can write something down. It is that what we worship shapes our lives now and forever. You can write that. What we worship shapes our lives now and forever. But before we go to the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer once again, asking for his help as we are hearing from him. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we have gathered before you, we have sung praises to your great name and confessed the fact that we have fallen short of what you have called us to. We have reveled in Christ and the provisions that he has made for us. Uh, Lord, we have read your scriptures and heard from your word and now we are turning our attention towards that word to hear it preached before us. And God, I am not by any means... Uh, thinking that there is not a heart in this room who is not in need of hearing from you this morning. Father, we are desperate to hear your voice. And Father, if some of us are here and we are not desperate to hear your voice, then we are in desperate need of being desperate to hear your voice. And so God, we ask that your spirit would help us. 
that he would come, that he would thrive amongst us, that he would speak to our hearts, that we would hear that this is a word that is not just from man, but from God himself. So Lord, speak to us, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, the first thing that we're going to see is found in verses 1 to 3, and that is this, that there is none as glorious as Yahweh. There is none as glorious as Yahweh. Now, I want you to pay attention as we read these first three verses, and I want you to see what God's people are appealing to as they are praying to God. Look at what it is that they appeal to. Read with me. Uh, You can follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Here's what it says. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. What a glorious text. See, Lord, you'll notice uh, in that text, it's in all caps. That's really just to help us to know what the Hebrew name behind Lord is. It's the name Yahweh, that covenant name of God who committed himself to Israel as a people to bless them, to be their God, and for them to be their their people or his people. Now here's a question that I I have as soon as I ask this, and a question that I, I invite you to ask yourself, and that's this. We know that this is a prayer of God's people to God, but how do you pray when you pray to God? What is your prayer? I think we can learn a lot about the way that we think of God ourselves, even as we think about how we speak to God when we pray. And we learn something about how they think about God when they pray. I'm just wondering, when you come to God, what does it look like? Does it look a little bit like Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live? Sorry, watch that particular skit too much. Where he comes and he says, I'm, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, God. You should accept my prayers because I'm a pretty good guy, I'm a pretty good girl. Or maybe when you come before God, you come like a popular Hillsong song, which is in deep in your soul, and you're saying something like this, you didn't want heaven without us. Oh no. So Jesus, you brought heaven down because we were just that special. In other words, God, you should answer my prayers because of how great I I know I am and how great others know I am or should know that I am. Catch this, if that's the way that we go to God in prayer, that is not Psalm 115. That's not the story of Psalm 115. No, see, what we here find is, is that they begin the prayer with this declaration, not to us, and just in case God missed that, oh Lord, not to us, but to thy name be the glory. Do you see that? Now, I think we see a few significant things here in this declaration. First, we are here understanding that we are not great left to ourselves. We are not great left to ourselves. I don't care what your mom told you. She ought to love you. But we are not great to ourselves. See, God is is not needy for anything in us. If you think that, then you've greatly underestimated the glory of God. See, our God, according to the Bible, is the self-sufficient creator of all things. The God who needs nothing from anyone. The one who sustains everything by his own hand and power. He's not using fuel or resources from some other place because they all come from him. Everything else is created except him who is the uncreated one. And so when God comes before 
for us. He is not coming, crawling, saying, groveling, I I hope that you will love me as God. That is not the vision of God in the Bible. The vision of God in the Bible is that first you begin with who he is, and then you see you as who you are. And we are, by nature, sinners are rebels and needy for the grace of God. We are desperately needy before Him. We need God's grace if we are to breathe another breath. And even in Christ, we know that we still yet come boldly before the throne of grace, but only because of Christ's works and not our own. But there's a second thing, I think, in this statement that's important. I think when they repeat, not to us, to us, it recognizes this natural tendency in our human hearts, even as Christians, to embezzle God's glory. Have you noticed that in your own personal life? We want God to be glorified, but how often do we say, you know, I want to skim a little bit off the top for me. Like, boy, I want much to be made of God, and don't forget that I'm here with Him. You know, we tend to deify ourselves. We tend to humanize God we make more of ourselves than we should and less of God than we ought and we are bankrupt sinners apart from the grace of God now this sounds a lot like I believe this verse the opposite of the prosperity gospel that sees God as a means to the ends of receiving material blessings now based on our faith right we we have so much faith and so God's going to give us whatever we want kind of a heavenly sugar daddy But we don't name it and claim it in this verse. That's a poverty gospel according to this verse. See, gospel-believing Christians, though, it's easy to say, well, prosperity gospel, clearly not biblical. But we need to be careful that we don't recognize that we, too, have ways in which we can wrongly understand who we are and who God is before us. See, we need to look at our prayers and our songs. What do our prayers and songs say about the way that we view ourselves and God? Do our songs and do our prayers scream, not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory? I mean, how often do we pray, God, please remove my suffering, please increase my salary, please heal my sickness, please bless my ministry with fruit that aims not at your glory, but mine, not at God's pleasure, but at at my pleasure. Because that is my chief concern, not the pleasure of God. Don't miss this. What you see is most glorious. And the deep recesses of your soul, that place where nobody sees but God, that will shape you now and forever. And you might think that's not a big deal and that's a thing that's hidden and then in the end it'll get worked out. But that thing which you love will shape you. Now, let's learn from the psalmist here that that third thing in, in this, that is this. Notice that this psalmist is anchoring his prayer in the unparalleled glory of the name of the God who showed them steadfast love and faithfulness. That is the reason that he says God ought to give an ear to him. It is not because they are great, but because of the glory of God. He is appealing to God's special, covenant, promised relationship with Israel. A relationship that God initiated because God was great and they were small. And he said, I am going to make you a people who are no people. That is the thing that he's looking to. God, this is your name that you've put on us. And maybe you're regretting it right now, but don't forget your name. Your name needs, it deserves to be made much of. Your name deserves the fame that you have created us to make much of you through and with. 
And see, they assume that God's ultimate aim is the fame of his name in this prayer because he is altogether worthy. Do you know that God is altogether worthy? He's altogether worthy of all glory. Every last drop. And the surrounding nations are asking this question, where is your God? And I love the response. Did you notice the response in verse 3? It is a simple yet direct and profound statement. Our God He is in the heavens. That's where he is. Way above anything that you can ever see. He is way above. He's in the heavens. And catch this. He's not inactive. Right now, he's doing all that he pleases. There is nothing that in any way impedes what God wants to do. You might think that you are great and that he is small, but it is quite the opposite. Here what we see is something majestic about what they are saying. That is our God. He is the self-existent. The all-powerful creator and sustainer of all things, high above, acting according to his glorious and free will. He is doing his pleasure. Let me just ask you this morning, have you thought about the nature of what you were living for? I've been watching this show recently, Madam Secretary. I'm not proud of it, but uh, as I've been watching it, uh, it's really interesting because there's this line that's used uh, repeatedly. It's not all the time, but sometimes. And you'll have someone who is asked to do something and they kind of don't want to do it. And the line that they'll use is, I serve at the pleasure of the president. And you're like, oh, okay, that's a good line. And they repeat it. And what they seem to mean when they say, I, I serve at the pleasure of the president, is that you've asked me something that's hard, that I want to do. I'm not really even thinking about that right now, but probably not likely something most people would want to do. But I serve at the pleasure of the president. So if you tell me to do it, I'm going to do it. It's his pleasure that drives me. It's his pleasure that motivates and moves me. And I'm just wondering, when you signed up for this whole Christian deal, or if you're thinking about signing up for your, this Christian deal, do you realize that what you are saying is, I have come to serve at the pleasure of the God who made the universe, because I know that that is good and worthwhile, and he is altogether glorious, and there's no other like him. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have been called to in Christ, to serve at the pleasure of the God of unparalleled glory. Now Why? Why is this important? Well, it's because I believe verses 4 to 8 tell us we actually become like what we worship. So catch this. God is altogether glorious. Now let me tell you about some people who don't worship God and what their life is like and it becomes. And this is what he says in verses 4 to 8. He says this. Worshiping false gods leads to a meaningless life. Worshiping false gods leads to a meaningless life. So while Yahweh sits in the heavens, catch how they speak of the gods of the nations in verses 4 to 7. This is what he says. Verses 4 to 7, he says this. Their idols, those who are mocking and asking where is their God, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they can't hear. Noses, but they can't smell. And they have hands, but they don't feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. I mean, just think about this. They're talking about the gods. And he says, human human hands have actually crafted the way that their gods look. They, They fashion them with their own hands, to manipulate those gods, those idols, to do as they please. 
And these idols that they've created, they can't, they can't speak, they can't hear, uh, they aren't able to see, they aren't able to feel with their hands, they can't smell. But what is he saying about these idols? They are senseless, right? Uh, they are senseless beings. They are n- not alive. They are dead objects with no power. They are silent and senseless, powerless in comparison to that God who reigns in heaven and does as he pleases. But catch what he says. In verse 8, he says this. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Now, Greg Beale actually picks this up in his book. Uh, it's entitled, We Become What We Worship. And in that book, he says this about idolatry. He says, we resemble what we revere for ruin or restoration. Did you catch that? We, we resemble, we look like, we become like that which we revere or the thing that we love most that controls us, either to our ruin or to our restoration. That's the nature of what we set our hearts on does to us. It shapes us. Now, I believe this sounds a lot like Ecclesiastes, where we are told that a life apart from God is meaningless. It is vanity in every step. If we are apart from God, all of life is meaningless. Now, some people worship literal idols. We actually have uh, a member of our church who became a Christian. Uh, she was from another country. Uh, she came to faith in Christ. She boxed those idols up and mailed them home as a declaration that she no longer followed those idols, but followed Jesus Christ as king. Some people literally worship idols. But there are others of us who are like, well, I don't have a little Buddha on my mantle at home, but I'm not really, so I'm not really an idolater. But I think what we found is through Scripture, there are all kinds of ways that we really do set up idols in our hearts, things that we allow to control us, things that we allow to enslave us, Now, things that we say that we might have Jesus, but without this thing too, we could never be happy. Those are the idols of our hearts, those things that actually shape who we are and what we love. Here's the problem. We as Christians, we all know that God has created us, but I believe that God has actually created us with a kind of reception or an antenna for God. Uh, So the, the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga speaks about this, and He said we were all created with this thing called the sensus divinitus, or a sense of God, almost like a sixth sense. Not a creepy sixth sense like you see dead people, but a sixth sense where you actually see God himself. And what happened in the fall is is that antenna was broken in such a way that we were all made to worship and desire to worship and seek to worship, but we are broken in the way that we go about that so that we don't worship the true God in the right way or we worship the wrong God. That's what happens. That's our natural bent and brokenness. And so what we find, I believe, here is that we all in our hearts have ways that we are giving a disproportionate kind of affection or meaning to something that is actually calling us away from the worship of the true God. Now here's the problem. That's not a small problem. According to this text and other texts, we need to be careful about our hearts and the things that we love and that we adore and that we worship and that drive the decisions that we make. 
And the reason that we are given in this psalm is this. It is because what we worship and love in this way shapes our lives now and forever to the end of either our, our ruin or our restoration. And so we, we need to get this right. See, Christians need to be careful about having our lives shaped by the pursuit of glory in anything above God's glory at the expense of God's glory. Now, how does that work out? How is it that we are shaped by things that we ought not to be? You know, I've seen this in all kinds of conversations that I've had recently. Um, one pastor uh, I had a conversation with recently said it confessed that he constantly struggled with how his heart desired to piggyback on Jesus' glory and ministry. And he said, I, I just want you guys to pray for me that when I am pursuing the glory of God and ministry, that it would be all about him and that I would quit trying to make so much of myself and caring so much about what people think of me. And then every pastor in the room had to ask that that same prayer be made for them. My guess is, is that every person in this room needs to have that same prayer prayed for them, that our lives really would be about the glory of God. And not only that, um, we see in other ways that we can misunderstand the way that God is altogether glorious and deserves our worship. Now think about it this way. Have you ever noticed how ideals can become the enemy of the real? Have you seen that in your life? Ideals, and ideals can become idols, aren't, aren't they? Have you ever had a situation or a relationship that just, it was not, it did not meet your ideal expectations, and all of a sudden you find yourself to just blow the thing up? Like, well, fine, if it's not going to be this way, then I'm going to destroy reality because it just doesn't meet my expectation, my ideal. Maybe you've seen that in close relationships. You struggle with close relationships with your, your spouse. Uh, maybe it's with uh, your family, your kids. Uh, maybe it's with a friend, a coworker. Uh, it could be all kinds of relationships. Maybe it's the reason that today you're unable to actually find a godly spouse. It's because you've never found the one that is at the standard which you have set, which is actually just a, a notch above like what should be expected, maybe a little closer to Jesus than what we should expect this side of the new heavens and the new earth. But there's an ideal that's an enemy of the real, and we have idolized that, and it's affected the way that we love others in real time. Or do we run when we don't feel like others are bringing us the glory that we deserve? You run from relationships. Uh, I, I remember when I first got married, um, marriage was so good for me, um, uh, sanctifies me, and I had a I have a long way to go, right, babe? And so uh, we've been doing a, a good work on me. And I remember when we first got married, I was in seminary, right? And so I'm studying God and humility and these kinds of things. And we go to play basketball one day in the gym. And it's a pickup game. And I played lots of pickup games over my life. And so we're going to play. And uh, all of a sudden, the game starts. And I notice Carrie's gone to work out. And so afterwards, man, I just let her have it. Like, hey, you're, you're married to me. Like, you're supposed to be my biggest fan. I was playing. You missed it. I hit, like, three three-pointers. I drove one time. I was glad you missed me trip, but like overall, you should have been there. And she was like, well, I was going to work out. And you know what the real like impetus behind that whole conversation was? Like my life is really about me and you've married me and you, you should be about me, me too now. And to be honest with you, that is not a biblical view of marriage. It's not the kind of selfless love that Jesus calls for, is it? And yet there in that moment, it was a, a battle for glory that I was fighting and it was hindering my relationship with my wife. I'm glad that I don't have that problem anymore. <clears throat> or what about kids? What can they make gods of and give kind of glory to that they ought not? Um, I'm just going to bring it out. Fortnite, right? Have you seen this? Like there's this game Fortnite that the whole world is playing right now. Happened overnight. 
And um, literally, it, it, it makes kids crazy. It does. It's like an addiction. Like, they can't stand it. You can go on YouTube and find videos of kids who've lost at Fortnite, take a big screen television that their mom bought, and hit it with an axe and break it. Why? Because they did not win. They lost. And they couldn't take it. They didn't get the glory out of the game that they trusted that game to bring them. And so it meant death to the TV. Like, that's idolatry. Like, don't idolize Fortnite. Now, that's kind of funny, but the thing that's funny really is about the nature of our human hearts and the silly things that we can love too much. We need to constantly be on watch out that we don't love things that we ought not more than we should. God deserves the glory for shaping us and the way that we live. So if you're not a Christian, I'm just curious this morning what it is that you're worshiping because I believe that you're worshiping something. And you may say, no, I'm not. And I would just say, yes, you are. But what is it that's shaping your life? What is it that's, that's driving the decisions that you make? What is it that's bringing you comfort when you feel like your life is off track? Now just look where you sacrifice your time and your money. Look at what you talk about. You know, if all you talk about is a video game, maybe that video game has become your God. But what other than God could you not lose and still be happy? I've had people tell me before that, um, that you know, they're non-Christians. I had a, a friend one time. He's like, I'm not a Christian. Um, and so I would talk about Jesus with him, uh, and I didn't think a lot. In fact, I used to pray and confess that I needed to talk more about Jesus, right, with him than I did, uh, but he thought that my less was more than he could handle, and so he one day said, you know, I wish you'd just quit talking about Jesus all the time, and I said, well, I don't think that's fair, and he said, why? I said, well, because you talk about your God all the time. I listen to you. I'm kind about it. I don't give you a hard time. He's like, I don't ever talk about my God. I'm like, yeah, you do. You worship the God of golf, right? You go to services more than I do. You're like Saturday, Sunday, day. You're out there like at the services. You, you pay a huge membership to be part of that group of golfers. All your money goes to golf. And when you're not playing golf, you're like watching golf on TV. And every time I'm with you, all you want to talk about is golf. And I don't know anything about golf. But I listen. You love golf like I love Jesus. You're a golfer, right? Golfer, a follower of golf. I'm a Christian, a follower of Christ. It's like the same thing. Just that in the end, I have a greater hope than you do. But I'm wondering today, what is it that you're putting your hope in? Seriously, it needs to be in something that in the end is going to hold you, someone that you can trust with your soul. What is golf or whatever it is you worship going to do for you in that last day when you face death? By the way, I, I do believe that you can love Jesus and golf so long as you know the difference between the two. And only one makes life meaningful and hopeful. I think we see this in verses 9 to 15. Notice Yahweh blesses those who trust him. Yahweh blesses those who trust him in verses 9 to 15. Now here we find another voice kind of break in. It looks like a priest. It doesn't tell us. Someone breaks in and declares this to everyone in Israel, telling them to trust in the Lord as their help and their shield. So look there at these verses again. and We'll read first 9 to 11. Here's what he says. He says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So you'll notice that this voice, it's very repetitive. It's calling for Israel and then the house of Aaron and then all who fear the Lord to trust in him as their help and their shield. 
Now you can see how this would have been important as Israel is sensing that life is clearly difficult. It is hard. And they are far from realizing the promises of God. They sense that longing, that that unmet expectation. And and I believe this voice that breaks out and cries out sounds a lot like Charles Spurgeon, who once said, "When when you can't trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. And I believe that's exactly what he is calling the people to do. Trust God. I know that you can't see it right now, but trust God. Believe that it pleases the God of heaven to be your best offense and your best defense. But what does that trust look like? Well, I like the image that I've shared with you a number of times. The trust that is called for here is the same kind of trust that Christians are called to have in the gospel and God of the gospel, the God of the gospel. It's this idea that Puritans give of uh, recumbency. It's an old word, but I bet it's more familiar than you know and about to get more familiar than you realize as football season starts up, right? You've heard of the, the lazy boy recumbent chair, the chair that you kind of lean back into. And the idea is, is that you trust that when you lean into it that it's actually going to hold you up, that it's not going to drop you. So you're literally leaning your life into this chair as you're watching a game or whatever. Well, in the same way, the the gospel, the call to follow God and to trust him is a call to lean into him with your whole life. Saying, God, I'm making decisions and I'm obeying you. I don't understand how this is going to end, but I'm trusting that obedience means that you are with me and for me, that you are guarding me, and that you are actually going to come after me if I find myself in trouble. It's a trust in God, a leaning into him. And in the same way here, the psalmist is calling the people of God to lean into trusting God with their whole lives. Obeying his voice with their hands and feet and even when they can't see them with their eyes. And then another voice erupts with a hopeful response for those who trust in God. Notice in verses 12 to 13 what this voice says. He says, the Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. The Lord will remember In other words, God has not forgotten his promises to them through Abraham, Moses, and David. God will pervasively bless the people of God. Uh, In other words, he he will remember both the great in Israel and and the small. Those who are of his people, no one gets left behind. Man, woman, or child. God will pervasively bless his people from the greatest to the least. And here what we find is, is that Though God's people feel as though he has forgotten them, they know that he is in heaven doing as he pleases. And here it adds, and it pleases him to bless his people. Did you know that? Let me just, like, quickly. We can't dwell here too long. But did you know that God is in heaven doing as he pleases? And it pleases him to do good for his people? That he loves to bless you? That he is not some kind of curmudgeon in heaven thinking, I only have so much good to give out and I'm just not sure they're worth it. That's not the nature of the way God deals with his people. God is pleased to do good for his children. He loves it. In fact, Romans 8.28 tells us, for those who love God, God always has an eye towards working all things together for good for those who are called according to what? To his purpose. So so God being altogether glorious is good for us. His plan for us is good. Handcrafted, 
Earthen gods cannot bless us. Only the God in heaven who does as he pleases can. And and then another voice erupts in verses 14 and 15. Notice in verse 14 he says, someone else says, May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. I, I want increase for all of you. In the future, may God bless you. See, this speaks of future blessing. But 15 is an interesting verse. Uh, Look there at what it says. It says this in the English. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, I'm not going to bog you down in like language stuff right now. But best I can tell with help, verse 15 probably is better translated as something like, you are blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. Now, this this, this isn't a massive, huge uh, difference, but I believe that it adds texture to this text. See, I don't think that he's there saying there is a future blessing of the Lord that's coming. But instead, I think he's saying that you are already being blessed right now. Like you might not see the hand of God, but God is actually wrapping you up in good. And he is already working out things together for your blessing. See, God's blessings are not just future and he's not just in heaven. This speaks of real time. They are already blessed by the Lord who reigns right now over heaven and earth which he created. God's favor rests on those who trust them even when they don't sense it. Anybody here ever struggled to sense that God was for you in the moment? And you prayed and you asked God through his Holy Spirit to give you hope and trust and confidence that he truly was for you, not just in the future, but like right now that his eyes haven't left you, that his gaze is upon you. I believe that's exactly what this verse is affirming. My gaze is upon you right now. I have not lost sight. It's not like in the end I'm going to try to come and find you and then figure things out. I am already working things out. I am already for you and my eyes are upon you. They have not left you. See, we can't trust our feelings. Our feelings actually need to catch up to the truth. Our feelings were given to us to be able to give right attention to true things. And did you catch the hope that erupts in verses 16 to 18? This is great. Verses 16 to 18. Here we see this, that our futures are shaped by who or what we worship. Our futures are shaped by who or what we worship. Here's what verses 16 to 18 say. He says this in verse 16. He says, verse 16, The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor do any who go down in silence. Now let's just stop there and look at 16 really quick. See, 16 is actually bringing us full circle, speaking of God as the owner of the heavens. But did you notice that he has given the earth to the children of man, literally the children of Adam? And that speaks, I think, of all of humanity. The nature of the way that God created us in his image and after his likeness. The way that he created us to have dominion over the earth, reflecting his rule and reign. And yet here, notice that he says something very interesting about this. He says there that not only has he given it to the children of man, but then he goes on in verses 17 to 18 to separate mankind into two groups of people, I think. I think 17 speaks of one group, and 18 speaks of another group. And and they speak of how these two different groups of people become like what they worship. Idolaters and those who trust Yahweh. Those are the two groups. Now, notice first in verse 17, the idolaters. It says that they are the the dead who do not praise the Lord. And he says, nor do any who go down into silence. 
Now, here's what's interesting about this description. Uh, usually, um, I've been told that whenever you look at uh, this line of those who go down into silence, that's a word or a description of death. And usually it would say something like, those who go down into the pit. But this word has been changed to silence, which seems to be pretty unique in the Old Testament. And so here we find this description of the nature of who these people are. Now, here's what I, I think the psalmist is doing here. You'll remember the idols. Did you remember that twice he spoke about the mouth and what the mouth does and the description of the idols? The idols have a mouth, but they can't speak. And then he goes on and ends by saying, they do not make a sound in their throat. So they are, they are silent, these idols that they worship. They are not like the revelatory God who has spoken to his people. In other words, idolaters have become like the idols they fashioned with their hands. They are dead men walking who go down in silence as their gods are silent. Now this reminds me of the recent death of the great renowned physicist, uh, Stephen Hawking. Maybe you, you've heard that recently he died. Great physicist uh, was buried next to like Sir Isaac Newton, which is kind of a big deal. That means that humanity looks at him as a pretty significant individual scientist. Also popular atheist. A man who did not believe in God. His memorial was followed by a symbolic act where his voice was beamed towards the nearest black hole to earth. That ironic. And we haven't heard back. His voice goes out into a deafening silence. And that is of one of the, the men that our culture would say is one of the great men of our history. And yet, that is his end. That is the glory that he has ascribed to him because of who he worships a dead voice that will never return. See, that's the hope of a man and the man and woman the world remembers as great hurling his voice towards a black coal. That's no future. But God's people, second, verse 18, did you catch that there is a hopeful difference in them? Verse 18 says, but we will bless the Lord from this time and forevermore. Praise the Lord. See, but we there in verse 18 that it begins with speaks of a different group of people. Do you see it? It's another group. And, and, and this people, we are told, their lips are not silent. They, they are lips of praise that actually understand the glory of God and understand that they live to give Him the glory that is due His name. And they too have become like what they worship. Did you catch that? God blesses them. He will bless them. He has blessed them. He is blessing them. And He says, and catch this, and they bless the God who blesses them. They become blessers like their God. See, in context, I think that that means that manifestly they express verbally praise to God. I think it does mean their lives, but here I think it means their voices crying out in praise to God, ascribing Him the glory that is due His name. See, they glory in the glorious God who made them in His image and after His likeness. But not only that, notice that they bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is unique in the Old Testament. This is a beautiful picture. I think that's why this psalm ends with the declaration of praise the Lord. In other words, while the end of the idolaters is death and silence, notice the lives of God's people are shaped by praise, don't miss this, now and forever. There's no mention of death for those who praise the Lord. The future is, is, is ahead and there's no death in sight, nothing but life and praise to God. Now there's no explanation of what this means here, but I think the rest of the Bible sufficiently unpacks that. Our hope is in heaven where God is. Now, if you look at the New Testament, 
you might be wondering, what does this have to do with Christ? Idolatry in the New Testament is unpacked as to why it's so bad, just in case, like, Genesis 1 wasn't enough. See, the idea is, as you look at idolatry, God doesn't want us to make images of himself because he has already made one with his image, that is, mankind. We were made in his image and after his likeness. Now, there's this really interesting story that pops up in Luke, in Luke chapter 20, where scribes and Pharisees are again trying to catch Jesus in a trap. And so they come to Jesus, and they're like, so should we pay tribute to Caesar? And Jesus says, well, why don't you throw me one of those coins and let me take a look at it. And on the coin, there's a picture of Caesar. And he says, whose picture is on this coin? And he says, well, that's Caesar. He said, well, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give unto God what is God's. And here's the ironic meaning behind that, I believe. Who is it in that case that bears the image of God? It is us. Caesar can have his coins, but what God wants is all of us. Mankind, woman who is made in his image, we are for him. But we are broken and marred. We don't image him as we should. And so we're told that that's the reason that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who in Colossians 1, 15 to 16 tells us this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Do you see that? Jesus is Lord. He is over heaven and earth, creator of all things. What does that mean? If he is the image of the invisible God, see him as to see the Father. And that he is over all things and he is high and above them. It means that he is to be worshipped as God. That he is the God-man, the one who shows us what God is truly like. The one through whom we funnel all of our worship the one who is worthy of all of our worship. So to see the Son is to see the Father. And as we worship the Son, catch what the New Testament says. New Testament says we too become like what we worship. If we worship Jesus, we become more like him. So when you get to 2 Corinthians 3.18, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is spirit. Do you see it? So if we want to become more like what God has made us, we are to worship Christ. And the more that we worship Christ, the more that we become what it is that we have been made to be. Glorious like our glorious God. See, only giving your life to the worship of Christ will transform you into his image from one degree of glory to the next until that son of glory returns to glorify each one of us with new bodies in which we can live in a new creation where we will give him eternal praise with our lives for his infinite glory. I wanted to to close with uh, just a a testimony from a, a godly woman of centuries past to help you get an idea of the nature of the way that being enthralled with the glory of God will reshape and recast your life and the way that you view everything. Uh, This is uh, a testimony from Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards, that great preacher who lived during the Great Awakening. Uh, She had an experience with God uh, in the 18th century in which she said that she became overwhelmed by the glory of God upon experiencing a very lively consciousness of God's being near her. And that was happening a lot during this great awakening, a a great consciousness of God and who he was and all of his glory. And she writes this in that moment. She says, upon this, this experience, I was led to ask myself whether I was not willing to be kept out of heaven even longer. In other words, I want to be in heaven. Can I put it off? Because that's what I want. And she says, and my whole heart seemed immediately to reply, yes, 
a thousand years if it be God's will and for his honor and glory. And then my heart and the language of resignation went further. And with great alacrity and sweetness to answer as it were over and over again, yes, and live a thousand years in horror if it be most for the glory of God. Yes, I am willing to live a thousand years a hell upon earth if it be most for the honor of God. But then I considered with myself what this would be, to live a hell upon earth for so long a time. And I thought of the torment of my body being so great, awful, and overwhelming that none could bear to live in the country where the speculate, where the speculate was seen or the spectacle was seen. And of the torment and horror of my mind being vastly greater than the torment of my body. And it seemed to me that I found a perfect willingness and sweet quietness and alacrity of soul in consenting that it should be so. If it were most for the glory of God. So that there was no hesitation, doubt or darkness in my mind attending the thoughts of it. But my resignation seemed to be clear. Like a light that shone through my soul. I continued saying, Amen, Lord Jesus. Amen, Lord Jesus. Glorify thyself in me and my body. Overcome me and swallow me up. And every conceivable suffering and everything that was terrible to my nature seemed to shrink to nothing before it. May God give each of us this incredible sense of being swallowed up in the glory of God to the glory of his name. Let's pray.